Good morning to everyone this morning. Just like to um, make you aware of um, something that's relevant to those who are involved in children's ministries, especially those who um, pick up children or uh, invite children to come along. Um, we have been using a, a form to register children to make sure that we've got permission from parents uh, to make sure that we've got all the necessary information. But um, sometimes it's hard to get those forms back. Sometimes it's hard to compile all the information on those forms. So we've got a little app that we can use on our smartphones. And so all you need to do is go to the church website. There's a link to registration for children's ministries in Coffs Harbour Bible Church. And then you just open up that link on your phone um, and then you fill out the information with name, uh, age. Um, there's a checkbox for parental consent to come. There's medical information that you can add in there. It's quite a, a basic thing to operate. It's not difficult at all. Um, and then that information goes to a central database that we have access to. And so that's going to really help us to share information from ministry director to ministry director, um, but also make sure that we have those necessary things um, for having children in our care. So if you have any questions about that, come and talk to me and I'll be able to show you how you can save that as a shortcut to your home screen. Um, if you need access um, to the church website, come and uh, ask me and I'll be able to let you know afterwards. Okay, so that's something that we're going to trial and um, I think that it will be a help. If you have your Bible this morning, I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 24, please. Luke chapter 24, and I want to start reading from verse 44. Luke 24, 44 says, And he said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, thus it is written and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Let's pray and we'll commit our time to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, that we can be here. We thank you that we can turn to your word and find instruction. I pray that you would help us, Lord, this morning to start to delve deeper into things that are quite familiar. Help us to find joy in places, uh, Lord, that we have been acquainted with before. But I pray that you would help us to understand the things that you have done for us. And uh, Lord, I pray that you would, as we read this morning, you did for your disciples before, that you would open our eyes, that we might see from your words some wondrous things. We pray now that you would encourage us and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 24 and verse 44 uh, is a wonderful verse that teaches us some insight about the Old Testament. We know that the New Testament talks quite a bit about the necessity of Jesus Christ's suffering and of his resurrection, but it's not just the New Testament that teaches us that Jesus needed to suffer and to rise again from the dead. 
In fact, Jesus said himself in verse 46, and said unto them, Thus it is written, and he wasn't pointing to the New Testament because that wasn't written yet, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And so Jesus pointed in the Old Testament to places that taught of the necessity and the reality of the coming suffering of the Saviour and of his resurrection. And so if you think that the, resurrect, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is just something in the New Testament, then you're wrong. Jesus teaches us that throughout the Old Testament we have much teaching on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he teaches us in verse 44 that we can find out about Jesus Christ from the law, from the prophets, and from the Psalms. These are places that we can look into and really if you look at the historical way that the Jews referred to their scriptures, this is a reference to the entirety of the Old Testament. You can look anywhere in the Old Testament and you can find teaching that leads us to Christ. You can find pictures of Jesus Christ. And so this flies in the face of those who say the Old Testament is one book, the New Testament is another book and uh, there's no link between the two. There's a different God in the Old and the New. It's not true. The Old Testament, in fact, teaches us some significance about our salvation. The New Testament teaches us the truth. It clarifies many things that, were left, that we were left wondering at the end of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament shows to us details of what Jesus did in the New Testament that are only shown there. And by tracing some of those things all the way through to the New Testament, we can learn things about our salvation and helps us to see the richness of it. So that's what we're going to do for a few messages on Sunday mornings. We're going to have a look at some of the perspectives of salvation that are taught to us through the Scriptures. I wonder if you've heard the terms uh, substitution, reconciliation, uh, justification or uh, atonement. I'm, I'm sure you're aware of these terms. I'm sure you've probably mentioned these terms before, but could you share with someone the difference between substitution and redemption? Could you talk about what reconciliation means rather than just saying it's about being saved? <laughs> they all refer to the one salvation. It's, it's not a different salvation that they're speaking about. But they don't mean the same thing. That's why we've got different words for them, because they mean different things. They offer different perspectives that help us to see the fullness of our salvation. Helps us to see the significance of the details of those words. And I wonder if that's not something that we all need a little bit more of. To realize that the salvation we've got is a rich salvation. Now, oftentimes we think, I want, to, I want to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ more for what he's done for me. And yet sometimes we think, well, I know what he's done for me, but where do I go now? Well, perhaps by looking into the, the nuances of the ways that our salvation is referred to in the scripture, it might help us to have other ways or other perspectives on what Christ has done for us. And so my hope is that by these messages, we will learn to rejoice not in what we are going to have or what we don't have, but that we'll see that our hope is in what we've been given in Christ. That it's there that we'll find our joy. And rather than being uh, apathetic 
or undervaluing the salvation that we've got that we'll see the richness of our salvation. And so this morning I want to start that process by looking at the doctrine of substitution. I'm going to try and cover each of these doctrines by asking uh, three questions. The first of those questions is what? What is substitution? And that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And we will probably begin most of our doctrines back here in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. We read here of the first sin committed by mankind. And we read of the consequences of that sin. We read that the consequence of that sin was separation. You might say, well, where's that in that passage? Well, think about it. There is separation between Adam and Eve and God. We see that manifest in a number of different ways. First of all, after Adam and Eve have sinned, when they hear the voice of the Lord God calling to them in the garden, what's their response? The response is to hide. Uh, The nature of hiding means that there is something separating you and the thing you're hiding from. Otherwise, you're not in a good hiding place. (laughs) Adam and Eve were hiding, showing that there was separation between them and God. And that physical act of hiding revealed a spiritual separation that was between the conscience of Adam and Eve and the holiness of God. There was a, a gap now between Adam and Eve and between their God. Not only do we read about it there, but if we were to continue on into verses 22 to 24 of Genesis chapter 3, we'll see also that this separation was confirmed by God. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. We see here that judgment caused separation and God separated mankind not only from himself but also from life. 
And we know that separation from life is death. Sin caused death, but if we understand death properly, we know that the true nature of death is separation. Separation from God, separation from the blessings of God, including separation from physical and spiritual life. And so God has shown to Adam and Eve, God has shown to mankind, and mankind has felt in their own experience that the consequence of sin is death. There is a problem resulting from sin, and we know that that consequence is still the same. But the answer to this problem of the consequence of sin would not become evident for some 4,000 years. The answer to this problem would not come for 4,000 years till Jesus Christ came in the flesh. But long before that, God began to teach sinners about the way to deal with sin. And it didn't take him very long to do it. In fact, it came even before that portion we read in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Genesis 3, 21, we read, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. We're going to come back to this verse in another doctrine that we have a look at on a Sunday morning. But even in this verse, we start to see that God has a remedy for the separation that sin brings. Over in Genesis chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. The Lord is establishing a principle that there is something that we can do to deal with the consequences of sin. There is a sacrifice that can be made for sin. And gradually the Lord is establishing the principle of substitution. The principle that something can take the place of the sinner. God will accept the life of a sacrifice in the place of the life of a sinner. And in this way, he can get rid of that separation that stands between them. When we come to the law of Moses, we find that this basic principle that's taught there in Genesis progresses, that we have a lot more information added and there's a lot more detail. We start to find out what was required in these sacrifices in order for them to be pleasing to God, because ultimately that's the question, isn't it, in Genesis chapter 4. Why did God have a problem with Cain's sacrifice and not with Abel's sacrifice? We find out when we get to the law. We find the details of how those sacrifices took place. Have a look in Exodus chapter 29. We're going to park here for a little bit longer. Exodus chapter 29 verses 10 to 14. Exodus 29 and verse 10. And thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And thou shalt take 
of the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards and the caul that is above the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them and burn them upon the altar. But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. It is a sin offering. This sin offering that's described in Exodus chapter 29 verses 10 to 14 is specifically an offering that is made to cleanse the priests and also the tabernacle that is to be used to approach unto God's presence. Now we remember that back in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no offering required. There was no preparation required. They were able to freely walk in the garden with God each and every day. At least there's nothing that we read of and certainly there was no shedding of blood. But now there is a requirement for a sacrifice. Now there's a necessity for people to prepare the way for them to get back to God. And in this process, there are some details that need to be performed. Exodus 29 and verse 10, And thou shalt cause a bullock to be brought before the tabernacle of the congregation. The thing that was selected was a living creature. And Aaron and his sons shall put their hands upon the head of the bullock. By doing that, those who were bringing that sacrifice were saying, this is taking my place. They were putting their hands upon that thing saying, we stand in the same place now, making a link between the two. In some instances, it says that the hand was placed upon the head of the creature and their sins were confessed as if those sins were being transferred from the sinner to the animal that was being sacrificed. It stood in the same place as the sinner. And then we read in verse 11, And thou shalt kill the bullock before the Lord by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. There is a lot of killing in the Old Testament of animals, isn't there? Um, and people might think that this means that there is no value placed upon animals in the Old Testament, but that's exactly the opposite to what this is saying. This is saying that there is value in the life of an animal. And that value is taking the place of the sinner so that they can approach unto God again. This costs something. Don't let anyone tell you the Old Testament doesn't put a value on the life of animals. It does. It puts the value of being able to approach unto God's presence. It's valuable. The animal was killed in the place of of the sinner in this instance in the case of the priesthood and all those who wanted to approach unto God then in verse 12 and thou shalt take the blood of the bullock and put it upon the horns of the altar with thy finger and pour all the blood beside the bottom of the altar the blood was then taken from the sacrifice and it was applied to the altar the place where all of the sacrifices of the people were going to be made to be able to atone, to be able to bring them back into fellowship with God. And then we read in verse 13, some gory details. And thou shalt take all the fat that covereth the inwards, and the caul that is above the liver, and the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, and burn them upon the altar. I'm imagining a bit of a difference in our congregation this morning between those who think that um, meat is grown in the deli at Woolworths 
uh, and those who've actually seen how meat is harvested from an animal. Um, this is the nature of what we eat. And some of you would know that um, this is a, a good description of the anatomy of what you find when you cut open a beast. All of the fat that covered the inward parts, and there is a fair bit of it, the core that is above the liver and uh, the two kidneys and the fat that is upon them, they are to be burned upon the altar. Now, why particularly this part? We, will, we know that fat uh, oftentimes in the law is described when the fat is burned upon the altar, it's described as a sweet smelling savour unto God. Uh, it's not a disgusting thing, but it's something that has an aroma that is uh, appetising. Uh, you think about an animal being cut up, that's one thing. But then you think about a barbecue, that might make you think about it a little bit differently. When the fat is being cooked and the smell comes up, you start to get the picture that it's a pleasing savour. And this is um, not describing what God is pleased in in terms of food preferences, but it's using something that is um, liked by humans to describe what God is pleased in, which is the sacrifice that's taking place. But interestingly here in the sin offering, which helps to set it apart from some of the other offerings, we learn in verse 14, But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire without the camp. The word without means outside. Without the camp, it is a sin offering. And this is a bit of a strange instruction, but it tells us that the rest of the beast, not the fat and those um, organs that are described there, but the rest of it is to be taken outside the camp, burned by itself in a place that is meant to be a clean place. Strange. We'll come back to it. And so this animal becomes a sacrifice or a substitute for the sinner. And we know that this is the case. We know that God is teaching us something greater than just a religious tradition to do with animals because in the New Testament, it's described for us and it's explained in all of its fullness. Have a look over at Hebrews chapter 10, please. Hebrews chapter 10. This is where the New Testament teaches us that there is something deeper going on in the law. Hebrews 10.1 For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered because that worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. That's interesting, isn't it? We just read, this is how God wanted the Israelites to deal with their sins by offering a bullock. But then in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4, we read that it's not possible for the blood of bulls to take away sins. If it wasn't for Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1, this would seem like a contradiction, wouldn't it? It would seem like God has two economies for dealing with sin, but it's not. Because verse 1 said, The law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image 
of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The law was never designed to be the thing that fixed sin. The law was designed to be a picture of the thing that would fix sin or a picture of the person who would deal with sin. Now the bull could never take away the sins of the people. And this is because a bull was not a suitable substitute for a human sinner. Not possible that that bull could take away our sin because though that animal was innocent, that animal was not righteous. That animal was not negatively sinful, but also that animal was not positively righteous. Hadn't fulfilled the law of God for mankind. And we didn't assume that it had. A bull cannot take the place of a human being. Now, obviously, the other problem with the, the Old Testament sacrifices is that they had to be done continually. They had to be repeated. And if it did its job the first time, it would never have had to have been repeated. The fact that these sacrifices were ongoing, that's the point that Hebrews chapter 10 makes, they would have ceased to have been offered if they made the comers thereunto perfect. But because they weren't good enough, then they had to be repeated. And so a repetitive substitution is obviously not a substitution that is working. No, what it was, was a picture of the real substitute, the one that was coming in the future. And this connection is made for us. We're not uh, saying something that God is not saying. We're not looking at the sin offering and that bullock and saying, this is a picture of Christ and it's not really. Because Hebrews chapter 13, just over a couple more, we have this connection drawn for us. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 10. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. There we go. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Hebrews chapter, 10, Hebrews chapter 13 tells us that the offering of Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the sin offering. He is what the sin offering was pointing to. And so that sin offering was a shadow of the Saviour. And that teaches us some wonderful truths. First of all, it teaches us that Jesus Christ was a suitable sacrifice. Where that bull could not take the place of a sinner, Jesus could. Not only was Jesus Christ innocent, he never sinned, but he was also positively righteous. He kept all of the law perfectly all the way through. Jesus Christ was sinless, he was righteous, he was human. He was not just some abstract being, but he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. So that as a man, he could take the place of mankind. He is an adequate 
substitute because he became human. That's why we must believe in the virgin birth. If we don't, then we're compromising on one of those facts. Either he was not sinless or he was not human. But another, another interesting fulfillment of the sin offering is what we read in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 12. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Remember that word without means outside. Jesus also suffered outside the camp. If you were to read Mark's account of the crucifixion, you would read that they led him out to be crucified. Led him out of what? Out of the city. John's gospel said that he went forth bearing his cross. Went forth, went out of where? Went out of the city. We know that Calvary, the place where crucifixions took place, was upon a road that led in towards the city where all the passers-by and all the passers-out would be passing by those who were crucified. Jesus was sacrificed outside the camp. Perfect fulfillment of what was pictured there in the sin offering that was burnt outside the camp, away from the the people of Israel. And you might say, well, it was just a hygiene thing. That's why they burn it outside of the camp. Well, there may have been hygienic reasons as well, but the other offerings weren't all burnt outside the camp. They were permitted to be burned in that place. And so this is a particular picture of a part of Jesus Christ's sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice, if it was the final sacrifice made for sin, then is not a sacrifice that needs to be repeated. And that's exactly what we read in Hebrews chapter 13. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9.28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. As that bullock stood there and the hand was placed upon his head and that bullock stood in the place of sinners, so Jesus Christ, when he was upon the cross, was there in our place. He was crucified in our place. Our sin was placed upon him. He took our place. He was there nailed to the cross as someone who could take our place. He was a fitting substitute because he was human. He was a fitting uh, salvation because he was sinless and because he possessed eternal life. He could give us everything that we needed in a substitute and he did. As that sacrifice was offered and the blood was applied, so the blood of Jesus Christ can be applied to the heart of every person who has faith in him. And this morning, Jesus is your sin offering. Jesus is the one who has died in your place so that you can receive that blood, have it applied to your heart so that the separation that is there between your God and you can be dissolved. Christ was sent to bring you back to God, to take your place. And that offering that Jesus Christ made was just like those 
uh, offerings that were made upon the, the altar, a sweet-smelling savour unto God. It was a pleasing sacrifice to God. Now, God didn't enjoy watching the pain and the suffering of his son, but what his son did was exactly what God wanted. Perfectly just way of covering sin. A beautiful outpouring of love and exactly what we needed to be saved. And it well pleased the Father. Beautiful picture of what Christ Jesus did for us. The substitution that occurs at salvation, unlike the substitution that the bullock offered, is what we might call a double substitution. A double substitution. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. Second Corinthians 5:21, "For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin." that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There is a double substitution that is going on here through the work of the cross. That double substitution is that he hath made him to be sin for us. God made Jesus Christ sin in our place. But the other part of the substitution is that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ took our sin and we take Christ's righteousness. A bullock has no righteousness to impute, but Christ does. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He has the life of God in him, eternal life, and we have that imputed to us through substitution in Christ Jesus. He took our sin And he gave us his righteousness. What a saviour. That was a loving and a costly transaction on the part of Jesus Christ. Now, lest we should stop there, I want us to go into our second and third points, which are much shorter than the first. But I want to ask two more questions, and hopefully this will help to bring it home. Second question I want to ask, after we've asked what is substitution secondly why substitution why would god substitute for us you know the simple fact of the transaction in genesis chapter 3 is that god's interaction with mankind could have ended right there in that chapter when adam and eve decided to sin god could have said The judgment of sin is death. That's it. But God decided to go about establishing substitution. And that teaches us something about the heart of God. He's not just concerned with justice, you know. Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11, a beautiful verse. God instructed his prophet and he says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked 
turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Who taught us about substitution? Who decided to institute substitution? It was God. It wasn't Adam and Eve on their knees begging, Lord, give us another chance. Lord, do something for us. And God eventually changed his mind. No, God decided that he was going to send a substitute for sin. And it teaches us the wonderful fact that God wants to save. God wants to rescue. Reveals to us the heart of God. It's not just what God did. We don't just look at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Well, that's how, God's, that's how Christ saved us. No, that's what he wanted to do for sinners. Because if he didn't want to do it, there was nothing forcing him to do it. God wanted to save our souls. But he had to do it a right way. He didn't just sweep sin under the carpet. He made substitution for sinners. And so as we look at substitution, don't ever forget that fact. God wants you saved. God wants every unsaved person today saved, not burning in hell. God wants everyone to find salvation in that wonderful substitute, Jesus Christ. And so why substitution? Because God wants to save a sinner. Thirdly and finally, what for? What for? We're substitu- we've been substituted with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's taken our sin that we might receive his righteousness. What's the point? Where do we end up or where should we end up on the other side of substitution? Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. You might still be there. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What is the point of substitution? It is to take sinners out of sin and its consequences and to place them into righteousness and its benefits. That's the point of substitution. The implication being that we ought to live the rest of our time in righteousness, not in sin. If God went to the lengths of sending his son to take us out of sin into righteousness, why would we go back? It goes against our very salvation to live that sort of a life. Heard the story um, just yesterday of a 14-year-old boy. His uh, name was shortened to LJ. LJ was suffering heart failure and he needed a transplant. And one day he was given the wonderful news, wonderful for him at least, that a heart was available and that he could receive an organ donation. Imagine the responsibility that an organ donor would feel when they receive an organ donation. He said this, someone lost their life for me to have a second chance at life. Someone lost their life for me to have a second chance at life. You know, someone lost their life for you to be saved. Someone gave their life, and not an unimportant person either. 
He gave his life to take you out of sin and to place you into righteousness. Shouldn't we feel an obligation for the way that we live? If he's been willing to give up everything for us. How dare we live in hatred? How dare we live in envy? How dare we chase after covetousness and materialism? when someone has done that for us. We've been saved to a new life. That's why God saved us. And so substitution is a wonderful doctrine. It's just one of the perspectives that God uses to teach us about what Christ did for us in salvation. If we want to remember substitution, have it, try and put together all the places we've been, let's remember this statement. Jesus suffered in our place as a sacrifice pleasing to God that we might be ever more righteous. Jesus suffered in our place as a sacrifice pleasing to God that we might be ever more righteous. And you know what? Evermore starts from today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would commit ourselves to you this morning. We thank you for uh, the work of your word in showing to us the blessings of our salvation in Christ. We thank you that this is something the Holy Ghost is um, spoken of as doing explicitly in your word, that he might glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray this morning that we might um, acknowledge that we see in the scriptures a beautiful picture of our salvation. And we pray that you would help us, Lord, to uh, live on the benefits of our salvation every day. We praise you and thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray that you would Bless us in our meditation now upon the things that we've heard. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.